Well, good morning, ENC. It's my pleasure this morning to introduce to you uh, our chapel speaker today, someone that I was realizing as I did the math in my head that I have known or at least known about for going on 25 years now, uh, ever since he and I were, you know, puny teenagers on uh, rival Northern California Nazarene districts. He, of course, being from the slightly inferior Northern California district and me being from Sacramento, uh, which were good times. But for me, our speaker this morning has been, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but have you ever, have you ever had somebody who is maybe just a couple of years younger than you and sort of following along behind who just seemed to be slightly better at everything you've ever done. Uh, so for me, for example, when I was a student at Point Loma, I, was the, I had the, the good fortune to be the director of student ministries on the, on the student government board for one year, and then two years after I did it, Josh came along and he did it for two years, and as far as I know, still is remembered as the sort of paragon of you know, student government leadership. Then I moved to Boston and I started graduate studies at Boston University and somewhere about three or four years into that process for me, Josh showed up and he and his wife Nell both started graduate studies working on PhDs and they both managed to not just start but to finish their PhD before I managed to finish mine at all. Uh, I got a job as a faculty member at Eastern Nazarene College, and I love that, but Josh went ahead and got himself appointed as the Dean of Faculty at Nazarene Theological Seminary, right? and, and so, you know, in every way, I feel slightly inferior to our chapel speaker uh, this morning, but I will tell you this, Josh and his wife, Nell, are just marvelous human beings. Uh, my wife Erin and I, we've adjusted over time to the idea that because we live in Boston, this sort of center of higher education, there's a lot of people that we meet who come and go in and out of our lives uh, and, and move on to, to other things in other locations. Josh and Nell are among the people uh, on the sort of short list of people we've never quite reconciled ourselves to the fact that they left the Boston area and have moved on to other places. Uh, they just made a remarkably profound impact by their friendship and their faithfulness in service to the church. So would you join me in welcoming this morning Josh Sweden. It's my privilege to be here. It's been seven years since I've been on this campus, seven years since I spoke in this chapel. It's fantastic to be back. I've always wanted to do that. It's like the rebellious pastor, right? Like, God just spoke to me right there, so I'm going to do something different. Uh, no, actually, I, I've got some notes, and I've got them here. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to bring a message today that coincides with both ENC's motto as well as your theme for this year and the scripture passage for this year, which comes from 1 Corinthians 12.31. And I do believe that God has something to say to us, and I hope, I really hope and pray that God works through me in that because it really will be God speaking if anything is said. But what I have to say is not going to be very popular. And what I mean by that is it's, it doesn't fit the way we think. It doesn't fit the way our minds have been wired to think about, in particular, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. And I'm going to be drawing from John Wesley, a historical figure, a very significant figure in the tradi tradition of this own institution, uh, to help us flesh this out. But I will say it's not a very popular way of thinking about 1 Corinthians 12, 31. 
it is time for all the heroes to go home, if they have any. Time for all of us common ones to locate ourselves by the real things we live by. That's from a poem by William Stafford. I like that poem. I think it speaks into our American individualism in pretty powerful ways. You see, we love our heroes, and we always have. We're obsessed with them. We're obsessed with these giants. Think of the biblical narratives we know, Noah, Moses, David, Esther. Think of all the Marvel characters, these heroes we have. Think of Homer's Odysseus. Uh, we have learned to love our heroes. We are intrigued by them partly because of how similar they are to us. And I actually mean that. We, we like heroes partly because there's something about them that's relatable, something about them that connects us to them. That's the standard formula. It's an age-old formula that these heroes of old or these heroes of now are somehow a reflection of us. In them, we see them full of capacity. In them, we see them full of hope. And we also see them full of failure. And they're going often through real-life issues. I mean, again, just think of all these Marvel characters we see now or the DC comic characters, these superheroes. Most of them have abilities that are actually just natural abilities. So we call them supernatural, right? And it's exactly that. They're just natural abilities that are supersized, right? X-ray vision. I can run really fast. Whatever the, the superpower is, it's really just that. It's, it's an accentuation of human power. It's an amplification of ourselves. And that's what we love about these heroes. That's why heroes are so compelling. There's just enough there for us to connect to them, just enough there for us to want to be like them, just enough there for us to want to, us for want to escape our daily lives and enter their lives for just a moment. Think about how kids play vicariously through their heroes. Now, I'm assuming most of you are smarter than me, but I remember as a kid jumping off my bed thinking I could fly. Uh, it was a hard lesson. Fortunately, I didn't break any bones. I know a lot of kids do have broken bones from such attempts. Uh, some kids, of course, try to punch walls to test their strength or kick rocks to see how far they might go, right? They're testing to see if they might have the same type of superhero powers. They want to explore. Other kids, of course, today, they'll live vicariously through video games because how great is it to at least momentarily pretend to be the hero? I know I'm not the hero, but maybe at least for a little while I can be the hero in this game, right? Now, the hero is flawed. The hero is always flawed, but that's what enables us to see ourselves in them. Amazon Prime just launched a new original called Jack Ryan, right? It's based on the Tom Clancy books. And who they selected to play Jack Ryan is John Krasinski. John Krasinski is your every man. There's nothing particularly special about him. And that's exactly why they selected him to play the role, is because now you as an audience can connect to him as a person and start to live vicariously in some way through him. You see, we love our heroes. We want to be like them. We, we aspire to be like them. My son, who is six, is just becoming interested in superheroes. That's him right there. And that's his Batman costume. He's insisted that he be Batman for Halloween this year. And he's also insisted that we go ahead and buy his Batman costume. So a month in advance, we've already uh, gone to a thrift store and bought that Batman costume. I've tried to tell him Batman doesn't smile, nor does Batman give hugs. I don't think Batman's a hugger. That's his younger son, Asher, there. But Eli, my older son, um, I'm a little disappointed he wants, to, he wants to be Batman. You see, 
ever since he could talk, he's declared he wants to be a paleontologist. Uh, he, he loves dinosaurs. He loves bones. He loves artifacts. He's wanted to be a paleontologist. Actually, I think he'd still say he wants to be a paleontologist. But up until now, for the first five years of his life, every Halloween he's been some sort of dinosaur for Halloween. Typically, it's a T-Rex. Why? Because T-Rex is the most heroic, right, of all the dinosaurs, right? He's, he's big, he's fierce, he's, right, he's just a, a T-Rex is, I mean, he's the king. Um, nevertheless, though, he's been a dinosaur. He's just now getting into this superhero thing, and it's, it's a bit of a disappointing turn for me, but I'm, a, I'm happy to oblige. I love to see him happy, but I can't help but think of the ways in which this new superhero reality that he's discovering as he reads books is rewiring his brain. It's shaping him to think differently. It's causing him to see the world through a new lens. Kids play a lot. We all play a lot. But kids, they love to pretend. Uh, a lot of us love to pretend too. But kids love to pretend. And I've been noticing how my six-year-old now, when he pretends, he has to do something that involves saving there has to be a conflict. There has to be some sort of triumph, right? There has to be a heroic moment in the storyline of his characters. Gone are the days when he used to build a fort simply to build a fort. Gone are the days where he used to push the train down the hallway and just say, look, Daddy, I'm pushing a train. He doesn't do that anymore. There has to be some sort of extraordinary element to all of his play now. It's really interesting. Look, Daddy. I made you pizza out of Play-Doh. Why? Because I'm pretending to be ordinary, Daddy. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't happen. There has to be some element of the extraordinary now in everything he does. That superhero lens is now driving the way he sees the world. Well, a small dose of the heroic is probably good for us. There's no doubt about that. Heroes can function as models, mentors, exemplars, people for us to imitate. In the Christian tradition, we have saints, and that's a, uh, just a painting there of our various saints. And these saints, of course, right, they function as models and exemplars. This is the, the best sense of heroes, really. Uh, just like some of the biblical narratives we know, the people from Hebrews chapter 11 who become for us heroes of the faith, that's a very positive sense, of course. But what happens when our love of heroes goes too far? What happens if our love of heroes begins to taint our understanding of the Christian life? What happens when our love of heroes begins to replace our love of God and love of neighbor? You see, John Wesley, that historical figure that I mentioned before, was concerned about this very thing. And in 1787, he wrote a sermon to the Methodists. The Methodists, uh, at this point, were that early renewal movement within the Church of England. And those were the forerunners for many people like the Free Methodists, the Nazarenes, United Methodists, many of the holiness movements we see, especially here in the United States. And 1787, right about the same time that, uh, I don't know, Larry was born or something, way back then. Wesley writes the sermon, and it's based on 1 Corinthians 12, 31, which says, but strive for the greater gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. And this is ENC's verse. 
for this year, taken from the New Living Translation, but now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. Well, Wesley titled his sermon, The More Excellent Way, and in it he surmised that Christians had become too obsessed with the extraordinary, with prophecy, with healing, with power, with leadership. Wesley said, first, Christians needed to attend to the ordinary gifts, and he gave a list of gifts that they should attend to, praying, sleeping, eating, conversation, diversions, which play, work, and money. He said these ordinary things are the things that first Christians should attend to. Christians must make their primary task to follow the way of Christ and the ordinary things, Wesley said. And I think we should find it interesting that he gives a list of rather mundane, ordinary, basic realities of human life. Eating, sleeping, conversation. Wesley calls them gifts, gifts we receive from God and gifts that we in turn give for the sake of the world. You see, for Wesley, there is actually a right way to pray. There's a right way to eat. There's a right way to sleep. There's a right way to converse. There's a right way to earn money. There's a right way to steward that money. There's a right way to play. These mundane aspects of everyday life are not simply gifts to me as if, as if I can just use them for whatever I want, right? The money that I may, quote-unquote, have is not really mine to do with what I want, Wesley says. The time that I have is not really mine to do with what I want. Instead, these are gifts from God. They're talents, Wesley calls them, to be used for God's purposes, This notion that the time I have is my time, and I will eat, and I will play, and I will sleep as I want to, that, that sort of individualistic notion is utterly abhorrent to Wesley. God gifts us with the ordinary so that we can use them right for the sake of others, for the sake of the world. When's the last time you thought about what you eat? I mean, when's the last time you really thought about what you eat? And I'm not talking about, you know, how many calories are in the food or how many pesticides might have been, you know, in the, in the garden before you eat it, ate it. Well, maybe I am talking about that a little bit. But uh, for Wesley, though, when he, when he says, mind what you eat, he means, do you know where your food came from? Do you know who was part of the process of making that food? Do you know what resources were used to develop that food? Do you know in what ways your eating honors God's new creation or not? Have you thought about your work that way? Whether or not your work is a reflection of the new creation, or as Wesley says, how is your neighbor harmed in doing your work? Have you thought about how you spend your money? Where are the clothes you buy? Where they come from? Who makes them? How many boats they had to go on before they arrived at the store or on Amazon where you bought them? You see, this is what Wesley means when he says, attending to the ordinary things. I think the one we need to think about most today is conversation. When's the last time you thought about conversation? About whether or not the conversations you're having actually uplift the other. Whether the conversations you're having actually attend to the other person and honor them. Or do your conversations encourage backbiting and gossiping? Do they nurture divisiveness instead of charitable discourse? Wesley sends, attend to the ordinary gifts. Well, 
I don't know, uh, but um, I'm curious what you think. Do you think Wesley made any difference? It's not easy to make a difference, I guess. 1789, this is two years later. By now, Larry is two years old. 1789. Wesley writes another sermon to the Methodists, and with this sermon, he begins with the question, why has Christianity done so little good in the world? That's a pretty harsh question. That's like me asking you, why does your faith matter so little? That's what he was asking the Methodists. Or it's like when your coach, I'm thinking of my basketball coach, he would, right, we'd come in from halftime, we're down by 10, and he'd say, why are you so stinking terrible out there? It's a really direct question. And then our coach would go on to say things like, you're not minding the fundamentals. You're not hustling back on defense. You're not picking up your man. You're not moving the ball around. Why has Christianity done so little good in the world? Is what Wesley says. You know, in all the times my coach would bring us into halftime and scold us for not minding the fundamentals, I don't recall him ever saying something like this to us. You need to get the ball to our best player more often. All right, we've got a hero. His number is number 10. You've got to get him the ball. Why? You know, because that's how we're going to win the game. I certainly don't recall him saying something like, I want to see more trick shots out there or more fancy dribbling. I'd like to see a little more hot dogging on the court. Coaches don't say that. And there's a reason for it. That's not what it means to be a team. It's not what it means to play basketball. So in 1789, Wesley asked the question, why has Christianity done so little good in the world? And like any good preacher, he answers his own question. Because Christians have stopped attending to the ordinary things. They've stopped concerning themselves with the ordinary realities that impact their neighbors. Employment, food, education, health care, safety, housing. They've been so busy striving to be extraordinary that they've ceased to make a difference in the world. They've distracted themselves with otherworldly concerns. Or we might say entirely worldly concerns. Power, privilege, influence. And I'm afraid John Wesley's question is still valid today. Why has Christianity done so little good in the world? Maybe we too have been distracted. Maybe our first love is extraordinariness and heroism when in fact Christ is calling for a more excellent way. ENC's motto, Via Veritas Vita, it's on your uh, school seal. How many of you know what that even means? Familiar with the Latin phrases? Via. Okay, a few professors raised their hands. That's good. That's good. So we're going we're gonna to talk about the first word there, via, which is way, Latin for way. Veritas is truth, and vita is life. Right, it comes from the passage in John 14, 6. I am the way, I am and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. And this is on your school seal. It's your motto. But I want to talk about the word via. All my life I've been taught to read this passage, John 14, 6, as a procedural declaration. No one comes to the Father except through me. That must be what Way is talking about. Therefore, right, I've got to find this Jesus person. This Jesus is the way, the conduit, the passage, the route which I take 
to get to heaven or to get to the Father. In other words, if we want to go to heaven, we must go through Christ. Now, there's certainly a biblical theme there. Jesus says in Matthew, in in his Sermon on the Mount, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So there's certainly a, a biblical sense to this. But I think there's something else going on in this passage. There's more to the word way than simply a notion of process. In fact, it'd be better if we read this word the same way early Christians did. You see, early Christians called themselves people of the way or followers of the way. The way did not refer to some three-step process to get saved or to get into heaven. The way is Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way. Jesus said, it's a, it's a name. That's what Jesus means by it. It's his title, I am the way, like God who says, I am the I am. There is no one before me or after me. This is my very character and nature. This is who I am. I am the way, Jesus said. I am the way, the very embodiment of the kingdom of God here and now. That's what he means by way. I am the way, the new humanity, the fulfillment of the new creation, breaking in amidst the old. I am the way, the way of peace, the way of forgiveness, the way of reconciliation. I am the way, the new creation, and in this new creation, the lion lies down with the lamb. People turn the other cheek, love their enemies as their neighbors, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, welcome the stranger, and give drink to those who are thirsty. I am the way, Jesus said, and the way is the new creation. The curtain between heaven and earth has been torn. That's the point here. This is not a statement about process. It's not some esoteric, abstract, or theoretical statement about how to be saved. Nor is it some statement about who is saved and who is not. That's not what's going on in John chapter 14. It's about what it means to be saved. I am the way, and the way is the incarnation of God in the world. Early Christians referred to themselves as followers of the way because they believed the kingdom of God was breaking in. And they also believed that their faith, their belief, should make a difference in the way that they lived in the world, and it should make a difference in the world. I am the way. Since the early church... Christians have been practicing, been living the way. The way has not been lost. And we see this in many ordinary small things. Christians breaking bread together. Christians sharing what they have, providing for the least among them. Christians caring for the marginalized of society, the poor, the unhoused, the sick, the widows, the orphans, the refugees. As John Wesley said, Christians make a difference even in the mundane, the everyday things like sleeping, eating, conversing, working. So if you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear this. Jesus is not a hero. Jesus did not become incarnate suffer death, and rise again to be your hero. I am the way and the truth and the light is not some egocentric statement that Jesus makes. He doesn't need to be your hero. 
You see, that statement is a call. I am the way, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's a way of saying, follow me. Jesus says, follow me. I am the way. Do as I do. So in this sense, Jesus is the anti-hero. He stands outside the narrative formulas and scripts that make you want to escape your humanity and live vicariously through others. But you know, the world doesn't need Superman. It sure doesn't need Tony Stark. God doesn't call Superman. God calls us. And God calls us to live into our fullness what God has created us to be as children of God. God doesn't ask for our extraordinariness. He asks for our ordinary. So if you seek to be a follower of the way, you might just start with John Wesley's list. You might just ponder what it means to eat faithfully, to sleep faithfully, to converse faithfully, to work faithfully, to play faithfully, to use money faithfully. And as a little hint, faithfulness is always driven by a twofold interdependent reality love of God and love of neighbor. Love of God and love of neighbor, not love of self. In the small and ordinary ways, I think we'll discover just how much difference Christianity can make in the world. But even more importantly, I think in the small and ordinary ways, we will discover what it means to be followers of the way of Christ. You'll discover what it means to embody the new creation, breaking into the old. You see, Jesus just isn't interested in our heroism. God doesn't call heroes. God calls a people to be faithful. He's not calling you to be a hero. He's calling you to a more excellent way. It's time for all the heroes to go home. Time for all of us common ones to locate ourselves by the real things, the real things we live by. Let's pray. O God who creates out of dust, who forms us from the ground, places us in the garden of your creation, and tasks us with stewardship. May we be stewards of these ordinary things, of the people we encounter, of the gifts you give us on a daily basis. May, you, uh, may we remember that in these small ways, you are changing the world. And we're grateful that you give us a part. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for your word today. I believe God has challenged all of us. In light of what we've heard today, we have the great opportunity to engage in what it looks like to be sent ones. And right in the student center, there's a mission fair that's set up for you so that you're able to find an organization, a church, a place where you can use your God-given gifts. 
the natural gifts that God has given you to be hope and life and love in the community he's, he's given to you. So after, right after the chapel service today, go to the student center, and there's a mission fair set up for you to find out more about these different organizations, churches, that would love for you to be a part of what God is already doing in Boston and in the world, and you won't want to miss that. You know, this morning I was reading in John James 1.22, it says, don't merely just listen to the word, but actually go and do what it says. So my friends, my friends, my friends and family now at Eastern Nazarene College, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, Jesus said, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So go and live as, as sent ones today. Let's stand and see the, sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings.